0: Some of you may remember the story about the man who was in his twilight years who began to have trouble sleeping as he thought about meeting his maker. The reason for his trouble sleeping was that he had cheated the IRS out of a significant sum of money when he was in business, and he began to fear that God would not look kindly upon him for his actions. Finally, after several nights of tossing and turning, he went to see his preacher to ask his preacher's advice. His preacher advised him to make restitution to the IRS and to see if he could then sleep. Well, he pondered this, and he had a few more sleepless nights because he wasn't sure that he really wanted to take that action. But finally, in desperation, he went and got a money order and wrote a letter to the IRS and mailed it. And the letter read like this when the agent opened it. To whom it may concern, enclosed you will find a money order for $50,000... Several years ago, I cheated the IRS out of money, and I have had trouble sleeping lately. If I continue to have trouble sleeping, I'll send the rest of the money. (laughs) This story, friends, highlights on this first Sunday in Lent our temptation to put ourselves first and not to want to take responsibility for our actions. There are a lot of things that could be preached on from the passage in Genesis that Pastor Valerie read, but I want to highlight just one point, and that is our tendency to pass the buck, to not accept responsibility for our actions. If Pastor Valerie had continued to read in verses 12 and 13 after God confronts, Adam and Eve, with having eaten of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately say, well, it's not my fault. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the fruit to eat. And so I ate. And then when God asked the woman what it is that she has done, she says, oh, oh, the serpent tricked me. That's why I ate, and that's where we find ourselves all too often. It has to be somebody else's fault. In my household, we often play this game unintentionally, depending upon which one of us, whether Dwayne puts up the dishes or I put up the dishes, of where is such and such, because, you know, there are two places to put things. The right place where I put them... And wherever it is that Dwayne decides to, now he does this logical thing of like, if it's a round metal object, you know, a metal mixing bowl goes with metal pots. I'm like, no, no, no. It's by function. Mixing bowls go together. But I find myself, even when he's out of town on a business trip and he's not unloaded the dishwasher and I can't find something, I'm like, where in the world did Jerry Dwayne put this? And then I have to take a deep breath and think, mm, I think it's more a question of where did Harriet Jean put that? It doesn't have anything at all to do with him. But we are just so ingrained and wanting to think that it is someone else's fault. I read a story some time ago about a woman who lived in Omsk, Russia. don't know if I said that correctly or not. But she sued McDonald's over an ad featuring cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets, which she said caused her to break her fast during Lent. <laughs> Senia Ovichenkova, an Orthodox Christian, said she was trying to stay away from meat and other animal products during the six-week period leading up to Easter. She said, When I saw an advertising banner, I could not help myself. I visited McDonald's and I bought a cheeseburger. In her official complaint, she explained, in the actions of McDonald's, I see a violation of the consumer protection law. I asked the court to investigate, and if a violation has taken place, to oblige McDonald's to compensate me for moral damage in the amount of 1,000 rubles. Now, that's a nominal amount, about $14 in U.S. currency, but still, it was McDonald's fault. It was not hers. And so, again, we have this tendency not to take responsibility for our own actions. Now, some of us struggle with taking responsibility for things that are not ours, but that's another sermon. I'm not going there today. It's fairly easy to recognize when we're tempted to do things that are wrong, whether it is to cheat, to lie, to steal, to hurt someone else. But it can be harder to recognize and to resist temptation when it comes in more subtle forms. And that's what we find in Matthew's gospel. So now I want to switch from Genesis to taking a closer look to the story that we find in Matthew. One of the most striking things about this story to me is that immediately after his baptism... The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And friends, I have to tell you, I don't really know what to do with that part of the story. I know that we pray the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, but still this idea of the Spirit leading us into a place where we'll be tempted is bothersome. And so while I can't explain it fully, I do know that time spent in the wilderness Provides us with an opportunity to grow in our faith, to decide whether we're going to turn towards God when life is hard and we are tempted, or whether we are going to turn away from God. Perhaps our baptisms should come with a warning label. Participants have experienced the reward of abundant life, but have also experienced significant hardship and risk, including dying to self, bouts of feeling abandoned, and times of intense temptation. Immediately after he was baptized, Jesus is led into the wilderness. Now, the longer I have been in ministry, the more I have realized that there is a truth. And that truth is... When we are about God's business, when we are poised as individuals or as a church to do whatever it is that God would have us do, that is when we will face opposition. Sometimes I even wonder if we're not facing opposition, if it means that we are not really being about what God would have us be about. Jesus himself said, woe to you when all people speak well of you. And Paul told the Ephesians in the 6th chapter to take up the full armor of God because they were going to need it if they were going to go if they were going to grow into the maturity and likeness of Christ. And so we have in Matthew's gospel three temptations that Jesus faced and that we face that revolve around our ability to accept that being God's dearly beloved child does not mean that we get everything we want. Three questions are raised that I want to focus on. The first is, will we trust God to provide for us? The second is, will we fall into the trap of equating protection from harm with being loved? And the third is, will we embrace Humility and patience as we live out our calling, or will we take shortcuts and justify our actions by telling ourselves that the end justifies the means?" I want to make a disclaimer so that I don't fall into the temptation of plagiarizing and let you know that some of my words today are drawn directly from an author named Debbie Thomas. It was just too clunky as I was practicing the sermon to say, Thomas says, Thomas says, so if there's a particular sentence that you think, wow, that's beautiful, think, oh, that's probably Debbie Thomas, not Harriet. But the first temptation about God providing, the first temptation targets Jesus' hunger. If you are the son of God, the tempter says, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. The temptation implies that God's beloved children should not suffer hunger. In the devil's economy, unmet desire is an aberration, not an integral part of what it means to be human. In inviting Jesus magically to fill his hunger, the devil invites Jesus to deny the reality of the incarnation and to turn what is not meant to be eaten, a stone, into an object that Jesus can exploit, as if the stone has no intrinsic value, beauty, or goodness apart from Jesus' ability to possess and consume it. And so the questions are raised when we are hungry, whether that is mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Will we trust God to provide for us? Will we trust even if God provides the food that's not what we would choose for ourselves, giving us figurative vegetables, if you will, instead of the sweets that we are craving? Can we accept that it is possible to be both hungry and loved at the same time, and that hunger itself can lead us not only to rely upon God, but if we pay attention to it, can make us into compassionate people who recognize that God has created the world with enough resources to feed the world, if we will but learn to share so that others will not go hungry So the first temptation is one about God's provision. The second temptation is one about trusting God and not misunderstanding what it means to be protected by God. Here, the devil targets Jesus' vulnerability, reminding Jesus that God will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And the devil is quoting from the Psalms. The implication here is that if we are God's beloved children, then God will keep us safe. Safe from physical and emotional harm. Safe from frailty and disease. Safe from accidents. Safe from death. Sometimes people get angry at God because God doesn't come through with a test that we set for God. If God loves me, then God will heal me or my loved one. If God loves me, then I will get this promotion at work. These are such enticing lies because they target our deepest fears about what it means to be human in a broken, dangerous world We want so much to believe that we can leverage our identity as God's dearly beloved son or daughter into an impenetrable shield that we can get God to guarantee us perfect and swift rescues if we just believe hard enough. But no, if the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that God's precious children still bleed, still ache still die. We are loved in our vulnerability, not out of it. Interestingly enough, this temptation is the only recorded instance that we have of the devil quoting scripture, and I think it warns us against using scripture for our own purposes and thinking that we are somehow morally superior to others— which can lead us to being against God in the name of God. Christian history reminds us that this has happened far more commonly than we would care to remember, and so it reminds us to approach Scripture with both reverence and with humility. The third temptation that Jesus faces is to be powerful and important. Again... We read the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Fame, visibility, recognition, power. The implication is that to be God's child is to be center stage, visible, applauded, admired by others. In our context, we might imagine the devil saying, you can accomplish your goals, you can win the world, you can fulfill God's purposes, but do it my way. If you're going to get along in this world, you sometimes need to compromise. If you're in business, you have to cut corners now and then to make a go of it. After all, that's the way that most of the world does business we hear this temptation and it is in stark contrast to those words that Joshua said to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness choose choose ye this day whom you will serve what we know from the gospels and their totality is that Jesus draws himself draws others to himself through love not through taking shortcuts, not through listening to the tempter's lies. In Philippians, we read, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The result was that God exalted Jesus even more highly and gave him the name above all names. Jesus is exalted because he was obedient, not because he gave in to temptation. And so the questions raised here for us are whether or not we can embrace Jesus' version of significance, a significance that comes from humility and surrender. How important to us is it that we are noticed, that we're praised, that we're liked? Are we willing to wait on God to act when we think God's taking God's own sweet time? Or... Will we take matters into our own hands? The reality, friends, is that we are all going to be tempted, and temptation will take different forms. The question, again, is that question that I posed earlier of whether times of temptation lead us to turn towards God or turn away from God. Are there practical steps that we can take when we are tempted? Well, there are. Imagine, I have five of them, so stay with me. The first is we can know ourselves. A couple of years ago, I shared in a sermon on temptation that... Pastor Jared and I don't like nuts and chocolate, and so um, many of you have taken note of that, and we thank you. But if you were to make brownies and bring them by the staff room, which people do sometimes, And we thank you for that, too. Um, If they have nuts in them, Jared and I don't eat them. And it's not because we're so great about resisting temptation. It's because we don't like them. But now Pastor Valerie will eat them, and the rest of the staff will, too. So um, just, just keep that in mind. But we know ourselves. We know where our weak areas are. And there's this lovely acronym that so many of you know that is HALT. And that is, if we are hungry, if we are angry, if we are lonely, if we are tired, we are much more likely to make decisions that we will regret. So, if any of those fit, then it is a good idea to step back and not to act. The second step that we can take is to rely upon Scripture In each of these temptations that Jesus faced, Jesus responds to the tempter by quoting scripture. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When it comes to resisting temptation, God's word is our first line of defense. The more we know Scripture and the more we use it, the more power we'll experience over temptation. When we're facing temptation, we can remind ourselves that if we resist the devil, the devil will flee from us. That's James chapter 4, verse 7. Or a memory verse of mine many years ago is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to all. And when you are tempted, God is faithful and will provide a way out for you. When we're tempted to lie, we can remind ourselves that Proverbs 11 verse 1 tells us that accurate weights delight the Lord. Now that's a bit obscure, but it's still, it's there. When we're anger, we might remember that we're to be angry without sinning. That's Ephesians 4, verse 26. And when it comes to anger in our family settings, we might remind ourselves that Ephesians 6 also tells us to honor our parents and not to provoke our children. The words of Scripture can give us strength when we are facing temptation. Now, I know we can't memorize the whole Bible, and we don't have to. What I have found is that when daily Bible reading is consistent in my life and I face a temptation, it's almost always connected to something that I have read either that day or that week that can come to mind. And if that's not the case for you, guess what? We have this great thing called Google. If you can't find the Bible verse that applies, Google it. Trust me, there will be one. Thirdly, we can practice saying no to the tempter when we are tempted. Jesus clearly said, away from me, Satan. One of my friends told me about listening to her younger child refuse to do something that her older child had instructed the younger child to do. The younger child got aggravated and looked at her big sister and finally said, no. You are not the boss of me. She said she laughed because she's a younger child herself. And then she was preparing to preach on this passage from Matthew. And she thought, you know, in effect, that's what Jesus said to the tempter. No, you're not the boss of me. Go away. Friends, when we surrender our lives to Christ, to following Christ, we have one boss that we agree that we will follow. And so we can practice saying no to others. Next, we can remember that we are not alone when we are in the wilderness. God is with us, and Scripture reminds us that God sent angels to tend to Jesus after his temptation, and that angels also will be ready to tend to us, to wait on us. And finally, I'm going to suggest that we have a line of defense that Jesus did not have, and that is we have one another. We have other members of the body of Christ who can pray with us and for us. There's a study that was done by Duke University before COVID called Sinning in the Rain. And the gist of this study is when it rains on Sunday morning, fewer people go to church. When fewer people go to church, more people commit at least three crimes, buying drugs, committing forgery, and embezzling money. They based this on a correlation between church attendance and crime data that was collected from over 1,300 U.S. counties. The research found that an hour of Sunday morning rain reduces church attendance in America by about 17%. If you put historical records of precipitation on Sundays between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. next to year-over-year crime reports, more rainy Sundays regularly result in more drug-related and white-collar crimes. So if you wonder if there's value in coming to church, yes, there is. (laughs) I might use that illustration again in the future. So, in conclusion, I had Pastor Valerie really worried this morning because I told her that my sermon had ten points. Um, But that's a number of perfection in the Bible. Just sharing that with you, too. We are all going to spend time in the wilderness. And the good news for us is that even the wilderness cannot separate us from God's purpose and God's care whether the Spirit drives us into the wilderness or whether we wander into the wilderness on our own, whether it comes to us as part of a season of wrestling with our identity or through a season of intense temptation, whether it comes to us through an unwanted diagnosis, a toxic relationship, a troubled child, a sudden death, an unshakable depression, the wilderness appears in our lives unbidden and unwelcome. And sometimes we have no choice but to trek through its barrenness and trust that God can and will redeem even the most desolate places in our lives and that our deserts can become holy even as they remain dangerous. And so my prayer for us all individually and corporately, is that time spent in the wilderness would increase our faith. May it be so. Amen.